for the first 35 years of my life, every single thing that I did was in service of bettering myself or my opportunity set. Every single thing. Like I learned HTML in high school so that I could make more money. I started lifting weights so I could attract more women. I played the violin so that I could get into a good college. So every activity was in service of an outcome that bettered my life, or so I thought. And to be fair, you know, a lot of those things did, right? I made a lot of money in high school because I knew how to make web pages. I took that money and I invested in the stock market because I knew how to invest, all because I was always bettering myself. But I'll never say like, it's bad to do this or it's good to do that. Like I'm one person and I will try to share as truthfully the things that I did and what I think worked and what I didn't think worked. Hey, I'm David Eliku, and this is The Knowledge, a podcast for anyone looking to think deeper and work smarter. In every episode, I speak with makers, thinkers, and innovators to help you get more out of life. This week, I'm speaking with Kay He, the founder of Rad Reads. Kay is an incredibly interesting guy. You're going to hear him talk about his background. He had this lucrative job as a managing director at BlackRock, and one day he woke up and realized something was missing. And he was willing to put that career on ice to pursue something new, something different, something that initially he was mocked for, but eventually he's been able to carve success out of as the founder of Rad Reads. And now he helps high achievers to live productive, examined and thoughtful lives. And you're going to hear us really at this intersection of the philosophy and spirituality behind productivity. And so we're not just talking about what we should do and when we should do it, but also how and why. And so you're going to hear us talk about telic and atelic activities, activities that have intrinsic versus extrinsic value. And we talk about the right type of goals and objectives to have in your life, but also the right kind of motivations to help drive those goals. And we talk about the cost of success and when it is and is not worth paying the price that comes with high achievement. And Kay really goes deep on the question of what is a life well lived? You can get the full show notes and transcript at theknowledge.io. And while you're there, you should subscribe to my newsletter. Every week I share some of the best tools, ideas and frameworks that I come across from business, psychology, philosophy and productivity. So if you want the best that I have to share, you can get that in the newsletter at theknowledge.io. If you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review because every single one helps us tremendously to reach other people just like you. Okay, so I think where I'd like to start is we were just talking about your interests in music, which I find really awesome. And it seems like you listen to quite a variety of music, which is non-standard maybe for someone of your caliber or in your space. So I would maybe say you're in the productivity space as a solopreneur or one of those kinds of people. And then I'll add the other part is that I heard you saying that you actually listen to a lot more fiction than nonfiction. And I'm not sure if that's still true, but that is one thing I find interesting because I think a lot of people in the business space, having gone from banking through to more creative entrepreneurship, which is what you're doing now, most people do not expand their interests much beyond things that serve those goals? I guess it's a two-part question. How have you found managing that balance? And what do you get from those fiction and creative pursuits that you think benefit you in a way that you wouldn't get just from focusing on nonfiction? 
That's a, it's a great question. And I would start by saying, I think like many of the stories that you might hear from me today is this kind of like a tale of two cities in that it, it wasn't always that way, right? I used to take cold showers and I used to, you know, beat myself up for not getting enough done, right? I used to believe that you had to struggle for things to be worthwhile, the scarcity mindset. So I'm sure these topics will come up throughout the conversation. So I'll give you a little reframe. I'm 43 and probably, so I became an entrepreneur at 35, so eight years ago. So for the first 35 years of my life, every single thing that I did was in service of bettering myself or my opportunity set. Every single thing. Like I learned HTML in high school so that I could make more money. I started lifting weights so I could attract more women. I played the violin so that I could get into a good college. So every activity was in service of an outcome that bettered my life, or so I thought. And to be fair, you know, a lot of those things did, right? I made a lot of money in high school because I knew how to make web pages. I took that money and I invested in the stock market because I knew how to invest, all because I was always bettering myself. So I don't want to, and I will never say, well, we won't get into the topic of objective morality, but I'll never say like, it's bad to do this or it's good to do that. Like I'm one person and I will try to share as truthfully the things that I did and what I think worked and what I didn't think worked. So I did that and to the point that it was so extreme that I would listen to audiobooks, what I call chipmunk speed, like 2.5x, like writing notes on the sub New York City subway, like on my way to work cold showers, like sleep. I used to be that, you know, a-hole that say things like, I'll sleep when I'm dead or real men take red eyes. You know, I used to say all this like obscene and like very ignorant comments like that in my 20s and my early 30s. So that's the first part of your question. So I did all that stuff. And you could make a strong case that it helped me at least like by the traditional definitions of success. But it definitely, and I could say this now with some perspective in age, is like it definitely like hurt me in many respects from a non-perspective. So I can list a few health things that I had. Like there were times when I had alopecia, where it's like chunks of your hair just fall out, stress-related. I don't know, maybe listening to podcasts at 3X will do that to you. There were times, I mean, I basically like ground the enamel off of all my teeth. So like I grind my teeth when I sleep. So I'm a very like anxious person. That would be another one. You know, at 40, I was diagnosed with prehypertension, high blood pressure, even though I weigh, you know, you have to do the conversion, but I weigh 150 pounds and I exercise two hours a day for 20 years. I don't smoke. I don't, I mean, I drink high blood pressure. I'm pre-diabetic. So like at 43, my body's starting to say, Hey, all those ways that you like put us on overdrive, you're starting to pay the price for it now. And 43, I hope to live till I'm 86 at least. Right. I got eight year old and a five year old. Like, I hope I'm here for a long time. But my body's saying like, bro, you did some shit to us in your 20s that we're paying the price for now. So I'd say like, don't think that it, there's just not a free ride. And I think, you know, they say like youth is wasted on the youth. Right. When you're young, you could just like just plow through it one more day. Right. Just like, ah, you're flying for a meeting. Right. Like, But, you know. If you're listening to this and you're younger or older, just don't assume that just because something doesn't have a cost to you today, that it never has a cost on you. So that would be one, one thing to say. As for 
the things like reading fiction, listening to music. I'd love to introduce this concept to you, David, probably familiar with it and your listeners, this concept of atelic and telic activities. And so I got this from this philosopher named Kiran Setia. And telic activities are outcome-oriented, right? You read a uh, digital marketing book to get better at marketing, right? Or you lift weights so that you live longer, right? Or look a certain way. And atelic activities have no outcome. The joy in the activity is the activity itself. You don't listen to music to be better at telling stories. You listen to music because listening to music is beautiful. You don't go take a hike. I mean, some people would to like get fit. A lot of people hike to be subsumed by the beauty of nature. Kids is a great example, right? You don't like hang out with your kids to be like, oh, so I really hope that they can get into Cambridge, right? You know, you hang out with your kids because it's fun to like roll around and play WWE with them because that's what they want to do. And I think that what gets lost in productivity, industrial, capitalist, you know, pick your word. I'm not using a critique on any of those labels, but I'd love to debate the nuance of any of them. But what gets lost in these outcome-oriented societies is that if the thing doesn't have an outcome, it's not worth it. And I think that is a sad way. It's a tragic way to live your life. Because I think what philosophy and spirituality and the study of the human condition would tell us is like that meal with your friends, that messy meal over a few extra glasses of port, like there's no outcome. It's just that moment, right? That is the beauty of life is to have those moments. Yet instead we turn it upside down. It's like, well, I'm going to have this outcome moment so that one day I can chill with my friends and just be relaxed. I call that the deferred life trap because you're just deferring your happiness your happiness, your happiness. And we can deconstruct what I think's happening. But I think I hit this point where I'm like, man, life is meant to be lived, not planned, not deferred. And the indicator that I always use is like, is this thing making me smile? I have a personal mantra, follow the fun. If it's making me smile, like just do more of it. And I think that runs counter to a lot of productivity advice. And so that maybe that's why I'm a, a paradoxical figure in the world of productivity. I think part of what you just said is going to tie into your background and we're going to get into that in a second. But I'd love to just push further on this note and ask you more about, I know you mentioned the balance between focusing on telic activities, atelic activities. And then you also mentioned this idea of not pursuing things just for the end and enjoying the process of the activity that you're doing. And it reminds me of, I'm sure you've come across 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, which is a really interesting book that I read not too long ago. And he really talks in depth about this idea that the one of the passages that sticks in my head the most, which I'm sure you can empathize with as a dad, is this idea that people say, oh, I'm spending time with my kids. I'm doing this with my kids so that they can do other things, right? And People talk about making the most of the time that they have. But I think Oliver Beckman's idea is that you can't make the most of the time. You can't use the time. All you have is the time that you have because you're not promised any more time. And so you can't really optimize for, ah, while my child is five, we're going to do this so that at some later point we can do that. Actually, the joy and the purpose is in whatever time they are at now. But what I'm interested in, and this is what I want to ask you about, is how do you find the balance between, so in another book, Grit by Angela Duckworth, which I'm also sure you've come across, she mentions the marshmallow experiment where they give some kids uh, a marshmallow and they say, oh, if you wait 
for five minutes or 10 minutes, or I don't think they told them how much time, but they said, if you wait for a certain amount of time, we're going to give you a second marshmallow, or you can have one marshmallow now. And they tracked these kids over about 30 years of their lives. And then 30 years later, they saw that there was a strong, a seemingly strong correlation between the outcomes that they had, particularly financially or just in terms of general success, and this idea of delayed gratification. The point being, if you can delay some of the gratification and some of what you might want in the immediate present, then that leads to better outcomes in the future. So how do you find balancing those two different ideas where on one hand, how do you enjoy the present moment and make the most of the time that you have now? But then how do you also be wise about thinking ahead and practicing delayed gratification, not just giving in to all of your emotions about, because I think that's also what leads to maybe you'll just be drinking all the time or you'll just be giving in to all your vices. So how do you find that balance? Oh, juicy, juicy question. So I would say that delayed gratification is a tricky one. I'm a big believer in delayed gratification. And I bought my first stock when I was 16 years old and 27 years later, I've never sold it. So my 16-year-old self gave my 43-year-old self like $75,000. And my 43-year-old self might give my 86-year-old self like $200,000 because I don't plan on selling it either. So I definitely believe in delayed gratification. Delayed gratification is also tricky because at some point you have to cash it in. Like you got to cash in the chips at some point. And delayed gratification usually is talked in financial terms, right? The things lead to financial rewards. Stocks is a very interesting one, but another one could be like the sacrifices you make for your business, right? Like I'm delaying gratification of having a lot of free time now to have a lot more in 10 years when the business is much bigger, more profitable, et cetera, et cetera. So this question is like, when do you cash in gratification? Well, there's a very easy answer. It's when you die, right? I mean, that's the simple answer is like that you have no choice in the gratification question when our time comes. Now, presumably, you would want to ratchet it in a little bit, like it would be kind of pointless to delay gratification until the day before you die. And so there's this question is like, well, you start to ratchet it in. And then the thing about time and money is that by themselves, they're useless. They're vessels for something else. Like time. So, okay, you want more time, but you want more time to do what? to hang out with your kid, to play soccer, to go to a concert, to travel. So the thing that I've found about delayed gratification is that it's challenging. It's actually hard to know what you would do with the time or the money. And so it becomes much easier to be a squirrel and just like hoard it away. And then when that time comes, and you see a classic, classic place where you see this is in the FIRE community, financial independence, retire early community. And so for your listeners who are unfamiliar, and I, look, I have lived many of the fire, like the fact that I bought a stock at 16 and haven't sold it at 43, that's fire 101, maybe. So I have lived many of the fire principles, and I think that a lot of them are worthwhile. But the thing about fire, for those of you who aren't familiar, fire is a lot about sacrificing today for a better tomorrow. So it's like specifically so you can stop working. And there's this like classic tropes about fire, you know, it's like they're like an investment banker, but they wait until the supermarket like discounts all the food that's about to perish. And then they like go buy bananas for like 30 cents instead of $2, but they're like brown and moldy. And so like, that's the whole thing about fires, like an intense sacrifice today. But what happens with the fire people is that once they get their fire number, a huge number of them are lost. 
Because fire doesn't tell you what it means to be happy. Fire doesn't tell you what is a life well lived. Fire doesn't teach you how to increase your capability for love and your capability to receive love. Fire is absolutely silent on all of those questions. Fire is completely silent on the... Now, in theory, what the fire people will say is like, well, I can't think about what it means to be a, live a life well lived while I have to worry about making money. And I think that's hogwash. Anyone listening can think about what is a life well lived. And if you're confused, think about this question. Would you rather be happy? Would you rather have a happy life or a life that's well lived? There's a lot to unpack there. You don't need freaking fire and brown bananas to start thinking about those questions. You can start right now, listener. And so I think the challenge with delay, like I have no problem with delayed gratification, but delayed gratification doesn't tell you what is a life well lived. That is a hard question that philosophers have wrestled for from the beginning of time. And just because you think that you can live off of your 4% interest or whatever they assume in their fire model will tell you what is a life well lived, you are dead wrong. And so... So to go back to your questions, like there's nothing wrong with delayed gratification, but what is it in service for? I would presume it's in service for happy of happiness, of a life well lived, of peace of mind, of contentment, of life satisfaction, like kind of the things people want for their lives. Go fire away, no pun intended. But every minute you spend firing, spend an equal minute asking yourself, what is that life well lived? Because let me tell you that, that the day you don't have to pay a bill does not mean that the, the answers to those complex questions of life will snap into place. Yeah. What do you think it looks like to go about that process of finding that? Because I think maybe the precursor question is, I know from your journey that you've gone on this journey of finding that for yourself, where you started as a banker, you worked your way up the ladder, you became extremely successful in the conventional sense, the typical model of what people think success looks like, and you lived that life for a while. And then eventually you decided to strike out and find something different and optimize for something else and find something else that would make you happy, give you fulfillment, give you all of those things and redefining what you considered a life well lived. But I have an interesting question, and I asked this to someone a while ago. I was speaking with someone called David Bell, but I'm interested in your perspective on this. Do you think that it is possible to start and find that ab initio, or is there a sense in which you have to get it wrong before you get it right? And the reason that I ask that is because I think you hear a lot of people that are also not necessarily in the same sense as you, but you hear a lot of conventionally successful people that have done really well and almost universally Everyone gets to 60, 70 years old and they say, the only important thing is family. I wish I spent more time with my grandkids. I wish I spent more time with the people that I loved. I wish I spent more time doing all of the things we just mentioned, hiking, reading books, spending time with doing all of these things. And maybe that's not universal for everyone, so I'm not going to project that. But it seems from what I've seen quite universal in that a lot of people have that experience where they realize that these are the things that end up being important. Oh, as you could say, there's the classic, the five regrets of the dying, right? I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had been truer to myself. I wish I had spent more time with my friends. I forget the other two, but similar vein. But why is it that the people, it seems very often that the people that have those things look on the other side of the grass and say, I wish I had more money and I wish I felt more secure and I wish I was more successful. But then the people that optimize for the other thing, the success and the outward signs of success and health and love and joy and those things, then turn around and say, actually, 
this other thing was the better thing. So how do you maybe outside of that spectrum find the life well lived? But then also, do you think that in some sense you need to, I don't know if it correlates with maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where maybe you need a certain sense of security. Maybe you need enough financial success that you can feel comfort and feel safe. And then that allows you to find self-actualization in friendships and love and happiness and all of those things. Or is that something that you should just find from the beginning? Yeah. Wow. So I think the money thing is always an interesting one because I get this all the time. They're like, okay, you probably have this much in savings and like, you know, great. You could spend all the time philosophizing, but like I still got college loans and I don't want to dismiss that at all. But I do want to say like categorically, like there's all these studies between like money and happiness and like it flatlines or it like it, you know, it slows down, but it's hard to see it like that it continues to go up. I mean, just look at some of the richest people in the world. You know, Buffett, two wives, Elon Musk, like, guy's tormented, right? Like, there's something. If someone's like, you could have Elon Musk's money, but you got to have his inner monologue, you're like, uh, no thanks. Like, But I, I often think about this story. There's a, a, a guy, an investor, a, a multi-billionaire in Germany, and he lost like 50% of his net worth when... A few years ago, um, Volkswagen got short squeeze and like the stock lost like 75% in like one day. It's like maybe the decade ago. So this billionaire lost like 75% of his net worth and he walked in front of a train and the train killed him. He committed suicide. When he died, he went from 5 billion to like 750 million. He felt so broken and maybe he felt poor or maybe he felt shame. I don't know. Whatever it is, he had $750 million in his bank account and he walked in front of a train because something was missing in his life. And both ends, and that's an extreme example of, you know, very, very high enough financial security. They're very, very low. And obviously, like, if you are struggling to make rent, you live in a state of fight or flight that I personally, I can't even relate to. I've never lived that way. So I would carve out that side of the population as well. I have a lot of empathy, but I don't have a lot of shared experience with that type of family situation. But everything in between, and I would assume that many of your listeners are not scared of not making rent or not being able to feed themselves, right? Your blog is called The Knowledge, right? I think that presupposes a certain amount of financial stability to be pursuing the knowledge, right? And so to go back to your question, like, is the grass always green? I, I would take the starting point that once your basic needs are met, and it, I suspect if you're listening to this podcast, your basic needs are met, then money is just another thing. And you could have $750 million and feel poor and kill yourself, or you could have college debt and feel like you'll never be able to buy a house and think that your life is over, right? Like it, it, there's every permutation. So I think that the grass is always greener and kind of what would I tell myself? I think that one of the questions is it comes down to what I think is like it comes down to how well you know yourself. And so what do I mean by that? Right? Let's say let's use myself now. Like I'm an entrepreneur, you know, the market has changed significantly. My net worth has gone down significantly from my investments. The cost of acquiring a new customer has skyrocketed. Conversion rates are going down. It's just a very challenging environment right now. So my first reaction is like, I need to work two extra hours a day. And so when my kids come home, they're like, daddy, daddy, daddy. I'm like, 
literally, I was like listening to a podcast. So I'm like, no, no, no. You know, I did the stiff arm thing. Like, no, daddy's on a call. And I'm listening to some like Lenny's, you know, product thing on like product positionings. You know, like that's my first reaction is like, you know, the world's, you could say I'm kind of like that billionaire that feels like the world's crumbling around them. Like, no, 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 kid. Like the thing that I purport to stand for is actually I'm putting it away. Like, no, kids, stay away. And I'm like, I got to listen to like how to create the perfect positioning statement during tur turbulent market. And so the self-awareness would say, be like, hold up, K, time out. What is really happening here? And I'm fortunate that like even in a market sell-off, like my family's survival is financial survival is safe. So it's not survival. Let's not pretend like it is either. So what's at stake here? Maybe my pride that I'm not the entrepreneur, you know, a bull market entrepreneur is a very different type of entrepreneur than a bear market entrepreneur. And maybe my pride, maybe the expectations that I set for myself, I'm not hitting. Maybe my sense of self-worth feels attacked. Then like oh, all these people thought Kay really had cracked the code, but he's actually struggling, right? So then you could see it's actually not about entrepreneurship. It's not about money. It was easy. Money was the gateway into, right? Stock market down, conversion rate down, cost of acquisition up. Money was a starting point. That's not what's really happening. What's really happening is that there's a part of me that's unsettled. And it's easy to point fingers at work and conversion rates and money and so on. It's not about that though. It's about something else. And that the challenge is like, well, what is that something else? Is it how others perceive you? And if it is, why does that matter? Is it how I perceive myself? Like I feel better about myself when my launches are better and I feel worse about myself when my launches are worse. Does that mean I'm a worse person when my launches are worse? Absolutely not. Intellectually, I know that. Emotionally, in my heart, I can't feel that. I feel like a worse person. So in those cases, the self-awareness, whether it's the law partner that said I should have spent more time along the way, the whole journey, they should be asking themselves like, why am I really doing this? Like, really, why am I doing this? For a lot of us, we are so attached to the playbook, the media and cultural playbook of status that when someone, when a bunch of people around us be like, that guy did a great job, that gal is incredible then we keep doing that thing. But they don't know what's going on between those two ears. They don't know what's going on between you and your spouse. They don't know what's going on between you and your kids. And if those are the things that matter, then I would argue that those are close to universal things if you have a family. Then whatever they point and say about your life doesn't freaking matter. What only matters is like what's in your heart, what's the conversation that's having in your head, and what is the relationship that you have with the people you care about. Nothing else matters. But the thing is that we can't, we get so locked into like, oh, well, you know, I should be doing this. My parents expect me to do that. My neighbor expects me to do this. My audience expects me to do this, that we're borrowing someone else's goal. We're borrowing someone else's life. And so I think that this question and money, it's easy to just say like, oh, if you had more money, it's like fire. If you had more money, you'd be a better, I mean, you'd be a better dad. Think about all the people that have a lot of money and are not great parents. Think about the divorce. I bet the divorce rate amongst wealthy folks is much higher than the divorce rates among people who are middle class. So I would say like it's easy to use money as a crutch in those situations. But instead, I say use it as the clue. Use it as a clue. Like what's really happening here? What's really going on? So I just wanted to double tap on something you just mentioned. I want to ask, how do you lean into conviction instead of giving into fear? 
Because I think very often, part of what makes us make some of these decisions that are suboptimal, and maybe in another context, if we were giving someone else advice, we would know that this was not the best decision. But sometimes we make that decision, like you were saying, either because our identity is connected to something, or our internal identity, or our external identity. And it's about how people will think of us and how people will perceive the decision that we're making. And then I think that the other level is about the psychological safety of doing what everyone else is doing or doing whatever you think will give you the most safety. And earlier on, you talked about the optionality and being able to cash in your chips. And I think it's a lot easier to conceptualize how you cash in money. If you save money, you can think in your head about how you can cash that in versus if you spend that time on love, if you spend that time reading books, if you spend that time, you know, bettering yourself in some other ways or caring for yourself, getting enough sleep, it's harder to conceptualize how that would benefit you or how you can cash that in. And so I think very often people choose to optimize maybe the money or the finance because it's easier to think about how that could give you some kind of safety. And so you have this fear of, even though you might internally have the conviction of knowing maybe this is the decision I should make, very often people default to, we have more fear of what we could lose rather than the optimism of what we might gain. So how do you find that balance? I think fear, anxiety, worry are, they're very powerful motivators for action or inaction. And I think that I'm definitely one of those people that doesn't like, just like stare, you know, stand down your fears, like all that. It's like, no, like try to really like let it consume you and like be in it, not consume you, but like really be in it. And so I like this kind of funny story. I listened to a lot of Ram Dass. And for those of you who don't know Ram Dass, he was like a former Harvard professor, and then he took a ton of psychedelics, and then he walked away from his life. Kind of similar stories of many of us with more extreme externalities. And then he went on the life of enlightenment in India to become a guru. And so I forgot his guru's name, but he goes to the, the Maharaji, and there's a story that he tells on his podcast where he gives the Maharaji LSD, and the Maharaji takes the LSD, and he's exactly the same person like as he is without the LSD. And what I took away from that story is that the Maharaji was so aligned and just so clear on who he was and what his shadow was and what his insecurities were. He had this like almost like perfect clarity on himself. And I think in the West, we definitely, we don't even try to have perfect clarity on ourselves because every time we go for it. We, we like get high or we drink or we like go work, become workaholics or we like binge on Netflix or TikTok or whatever. Like it's almost like being clear on what's going on between these two ears is like frowned upon. So what I would say to this question about fear is like when you like open your head, is it like perfectly? It's like imagine the inside of your head is like a camera. Is it like the iPhone 14 Pro or is it like the iPhone 3 camera, right? Like all fuzzy and blurry and like all that, right? And so when you have that clarity, there's a few ways to get that clarity. You can kind of sharpen what you're seeing or you can let all the noise drop away. And so that achieving, so achieving that clarity makes the fear seem much more defanged, so to speak, right? So if I'm going through my example, I'm like, oh, like we're going to miss our numbers this quarter because of the recession. So what's the fear? 
And I, I used to do it philosophically. Like, what, like, what are you scared? Are you scared of being homeless? No. Are you scared of like being, you know, not making your car payment? No. Are you scared of like, no. I'm like, well, what are you scared of? Like, oh, I'm scared of, you know, people who thought I was a great creator think that I'm a second rate creator or, oh, maybe I'll have to pivot much harder in my business that I'm used to. So you go through these different stories and like once with the clarity, all the stories, they just, they kind of fade into the background. And what you get to is you get to these like kernels of truth about yourself. And one of the kernels of truth that I have about myself is I fear my own irrelevance. Like when I see movies about space, it's, they scare me because they show me how irrelevant I am. I'm just a piece of dust. And so, so much of my telos, so much of my doing, so much of my entrepreneurship is my combat mechanism to not feel irrelevant in the grand scheme of this earth. And so I can see that kernel. And almost every time I'm, I'm in misaligned fear, worry, and anxiety, it comes from this tension that I have with this kernel, which is like, hey, you're irrelevant. But the other side of that, that thing is like, hey, you are everything to anyone who needs you to be something. You're everything. And so being able to sit with those dualities actually makes the fear, it's, there's not even a fear. It's just this clarity of like who you are and what you stand for. It, it makes it easier. But the clarity and, and the fear and the anxiety, you just realize that that's just like stirring that pot. The pot, the elements are still in the pot, but they're perfectly clear and what they are and you can see them for what they are and i've spent enough time observing them that they just don't they're not scary anymore yeah i love that idea of it's not necessarily running towards or away from the fear but understanding the fear and having clarity and then being able to sit with it and then being able to use that state of clarity to make great decisions and that's the beautiful thing of it is like anytime there's an internal conflict like I want to be successful, but I want to spend time with my, my kids. That tension eats away at that clarity. And so the more, and this is why like I journal a lot and I meditate and I just, that's why I don't listen to fiction, you know, business podcasts, because I want that clarity to really, like, I want to know who I am. And that doesn't mean that like, I think I'm a freaking badass entrepreneur. I'm not attached to that identity or I'm trying to detach from that identity. But I see that plays a role in my psyche that is, can cause conflict. And so I just know how to tread around that. I know how to honor it. And I know that it all comes from this root feeling of like, I just hate, it, it comes from being a child where like, I felt like everyone ignored me. And so I think the childhood mechanism was like, okay, you're ignoring me now, but one day, not only will you not ignore me, you will listen to me. And to see this like little boy, this like 12 year old boy that like kind of was ignored by a lot of people, not my parents, but like socially to be like, I'm going to show like, he's still waving his finger, this 12 year old boy, like, I'm going to show you mother, you know, and to be like, that's why you're stressing when the market's down 15% because that little boy's like wagging his finger and it's like, oh, maybe I can't show you because my stock portfolio is down 20%. Philosophers or life coaches wouldn't say this, but like, I kind of laugh at the whole thing, not in a way that's like mocking, but I'm just like, this is so, like, aren't human beings so silly? Like, you know, there's kind of an absurdity to it all, a playful absurdity. I think it's kind of endearingly cute that humans act this way. 
Yeah, I love that. And just what you were mentioning as well about the duality, even in your childhood. So I'd love to ask you a few, maybe it's a multi-part question, but I'm interested to know earlier on, you were talking about when you were younger and you maybe optimized for the wrong things, but you were doing things that objectively may have been great, but you were perhaps doing it for the wrong reasons. And so even though you may have got some of the results, the positive results that came with doing those things, you may have also had some negative externalities. So for example, you mentioned you started working out, which is a great thing. That's good for your body, but you were working out because you wanted more attractive mates. You wanted to meet girls. You wanted to do lots of other things. You mentioned you started designing websites to make money, which is also great, both for your creativity and then also for your financial success. But then maybe the reasons for which you were doing it were not the the best for you personally and didn't lead to some of the best outcomes, the anxiety, all of those other things that you mentioned. So I'm interested to know, I think you have mentioned before, I think it was your dad that once said something like, if you're looking for happiness, you have too much time and you should go back to work. And I know that you're a second generation immigrant and I'm interested to know how much of that identity came through in those actions that you took and the resulting I guess, persona that you developed, how has that helped and how has it harmed? I know you've talked some about how has it harmed, but maybe obviously you've also gone through this journey of going into banking. Like how might that have driven you to the top of this field where you became incredibly successful? How might it have also helped maybe in your field of entrepreneurship? So do you think that some of that has carried on or have you had to cast that aside completely in order to get to where you are now? Yeah. So I'll answer the question about child of first generation immigrants, because I think that they're, I mean, first there's just a cultural, right? Like my dad grew up in Cambodia with barely any money. And then I was born in New York city and I went to private school, right? It's just the starting, the starting line is just within the family is different, right? It's like so different at 22, you know, I speak two languages I have a Yale degree and I know how to program and I've already got an investment portfolio, right? At 22, there's genocide crashing around everything my dad knows. So I think this is definitely not for this conversation, but one thing that I've gotten thought a lot more about is I want to investigate what, you know, a field called intergenerational trauma, where like the rational part of me is like, no, like trauma just sticks. But I'm very curious because I see a lot of my tendencies are actually very related to how my dad would act in many of these situations. And so there's just an acknowledgement of a difference. And I think every generation wants what's better for the generation that comes after them, right? So my parents made financial sacrifice, lifestyle sacrifices, so that we could have career financial stability, right? You know, maybe I overshot that. And I was like, I got career stability, but I want happiness. And like, I might look down at my kids and be like, I don't want you to have that unseen feeling that I had as a child, or I was not encouraged to look within. I want you to like look within at age five, right? Like, what do you see? I want to talk about death and, and things like that. So every generation does the best that they can with the tools that they have and the circumstances that they have, and then wants even better for the next generation. I think that has always been the case and it will continue well beyond you and I, David. So that's kind of how I think about, I do think that there's probably a lot of intergenerational trauma that I haven't processed. In terms of like, well, you needed this path to be on this next path. Like you needed to have gone through a banker to be an entrepreneur and absolutely. And people always ask me, do you have any regrets? I have no regrets because I am the sum product of all of my experiences right? 
Rad reads wouldn't exist if I couldn't have reflected about what it was like to leave a corporate. Like it had to exist by definition, the corporate job. I would have nothing else to write about. And then you start to see as you get older, you start to see these through lines in your life. And one of them for me that I've started to see is teaching and mentoring. Like I've always, when I worked on Wall Street, I taught people GTD on Wall Street. Like, duh, he's teaching a product, supercharger productivity course now. Like, it's the captain obvious, right? You know, just take that through line. I've always really cared about getting community, getting groups of people, like-minded people together. Uh, that's always been a thing. I did that as a nerdy Magic the Gathering kid in, you know, the 90s. And you know, I do it now on digital Slack communities for creators. So these are different ways in which I never... Look back, I'm like, I needed this last thing to happen for this next thing to happen. The only thing that I, I wouldn't even have done it differently, but if I wish I knew is like, if you look at the chatter, the internal chatter in my head from ages zero to 35, it was 90% negative voices. You suck. You're not good enough. Try harder. Do more. And 10% like, great job. Like, I really see you. I recognize what you did. 90, 10, 90, mean, 10, nice. I've flipped those since I turned 35-ish with a lot of healing and therapy. And now it's the opposite 90, 10. So it's always like, that a boy, like you get, you know, like I see you, you're, you're doing. And people often say like, do you have to beat yourself up to be successful? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm pretty sure that I could have kept that same mindset and, you know, again, conventional success wouldn't have been impacted, probably would have been even higher. Again, what's the point of debating? That's like, would the Bulls beat the Lakers, like the 90s Bulls beat the 2000s Lakers? Like, this is a stupid conversation. But that's the one thing that I was like, oh, man. And I tell younger folk, just pay attention to that voice in your head, right? Just shift that ratio. If you don't believe me, just experiment with it. Shift it a little bit. I think so much of the conversation that we've had has been around this idea that the physical and tangible aspects of something that you're doing matters maybe less than the mindset with which you approach it. And so this even ties to a lot of what you're doing now with 10K work. And I'm really interested to ask a question around this, which is you have always been, you know, ambitious. You've always worked hard. You've always been focused on trying to do your best work. I'm sure you did the exact same as a banker and you're doing it now as an entrepreneur. But the mindset and the approach is different. And before, maybe you were burning yourself out pre, before you turned 35, you're working super hard. You were being successful, but burning yourself out, going through the anxiety and the gnashing your teeth and all of those things. But now you're still trying to do your best work, but then you're making time to surf and you're prioritizing your family and you're prioritizing other things, even though the outcome that you're looking for is still the same, quote unquote, in theory. And so... How do you think, maybe you can expand more on this idea of 10K work. And then also for the people that I'm sure everyone listening to this wants to do their best work, right? No matter what outcome, what actions they take to bring that about, they are ultimately trying to reach that goal. And how does this mindset shift help us to achieve it in a more sustainable way? Yep. Yep. It's a great question. And... You know, I think there's a starting supposition, there's a starting premise in your question that you have to grind for excellence, right? We look at like Tom Brady and, you know, Ronaldo and the greatest, they grind so hard for their excellence. And maybe you do in those 
crafts. Although I would argue that there's a lot of, you know, I think Sampras was one where he didn't even start, no, Federer, sorry. Like he didn't start playing tennis till he was like 15 years old. You know, there's a lot of like, you know, there's like Tiger Woods where like they put the golf club in the, in the nursery. And then there's like Roger Federer where they're like, just play whatever sport you like. And then 15, he's like, oh, I'm good at this tennis thing. So again, I, I'm not here to say one is right or wrong because I have no freaking clue. But what I do know is that whether you call it flow, whether you call it zone of genius, but when things come naturally to you, you're unstoppable. And so for me as an entrepreneur, I'm what are things that come naturally to me? And like, to me, it's like live video, it's writing, just like talking off the cuff. What doesn't come naturally to me? Production quality video visual, photography. And so you could see from like the way our business has grown, like there's no Instagram, there's no YouTube, but there's a lot of writing. There's a lot of podcast interviews. And so I'm always like, yeah, it would be great if we had an Instagram presence, but it would be so grueling to do for me because it's just not what I enjoy. That what if I just take that? And it, you know, I don't have infinite resources. So why don't I just take that energy and apply it to something that I love doing. Like I could write two blogs. I've thought about upping my rate of writing to two times a week from up from one because it's so natural. I just see something in the news. I'm like, I got to write about this. You see how this weekend I'm going to write about Tom Brady and ambition because I saw this quote he made, how he hasn't had Christmas at home for 23 years. And I was like, okay, like that's an interesting concept. Like would you sacrifice 23 Christmases to be the best in the world? Let's explore that. And so I, I think that a lot of people are wired. I was wired that like stuff's got to be hard for it to be good. And I'm just like, I'm just open. I open myself to the perspective that like things can be easy and still be great. Doesn't mean you're not going to have bouts of adversity, but it means a thing that you dread doing, like maybe you shouldn't do it. And I think that's a little bit contrarian of a perspective. And again, I think many of your listeners will be like, well, he could say that. Because, you know, he saved this much money doing it. Yeah, but like, you know, as an entrepreneur, we're still in like the first inning. We're nowhere, we're still like wrestling for product market fit. No, we're not in the Series D phase of our business. So that's kind of how I would think about that question of ease and effortlessness. Awesome. Okay, thanks so much for being incredibly generous with your time. I've definitely got to have you back for a part two. There's so much we didn't get to touch on, but thanks again for coming on. Awesome, David and all the listeners. Thank you so much. It's been a true joy. We'll do round two soon. Love it. Thanks a lot, Kay. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.